Hi there, this is your Value Through Vulnerability podcast host, Gary Turner. Had the pleasure of welcoming Matt O'Neill onto the podcast today, um, who is a creative entrepreneur and futurist. I've known Matt now for just over a year after meeting him via a thought group called The Workforce of the Future. Um, Matt's a really, really bright guy, um, really, looking at, really looking at the future of work, runs a media agency, and just got a really interesting perspective on the current and future world of work, which I really enjoy discussing with him. So a couple of the sort of things I took away just up front is this battle going on between what we want and what is mainstream. And this really plays into a lot of the challenges we're seeing on not, not only an organizational basis, but also on a macroeconomic basis. You know, there's, there's an awful lot of fear and a lot of friction between where we're coming from and where we're going to, which, of course, is heavily uh, enabled by, by, by technological change. You know, it's, it's something I feel very positive about personally. I think the rehumanization of ourselves and of work is something that's long overdue, um, but naturally that does challenge the current power base um, as, as it currently sits. One of the other things I took away from that was the fact that we need to be focusing less on skills potentially as we go forward and more specifically on the problems that society has. Um, so that's an interesting thing. So I've been having a look at the, you know, the future skills that are needed for the future of work, such as creativity, problem solving, and cultural and social awareness, etc. So they're things that I, I, I do believe that we still need. Um, but I do enjoy that challenge of Matt's, which is actually, you know, do we need to be looking at the outcome um, that we need to solve rather than just on the skills that we believe we will need? So, you know, it's a really engaging, really diverse conversation, this um, between Matt and I. I'm really grateful you joined me today. And uh, I'm really confident you'll get some uh, interesting takeaways. So please do dive in. Really grateful if you can offer some feedback to Matt and or myself. And uh, yeah, hope you enjoy the chat. Welcome to Value Through Vulnerability, a podcast dedicated to putting the human back into humanity. This morning, I'm really grateful to welcome Matt O'Neill, who is a creative entrepreneur and futurist. Good morning, Matt. Hello, Gary. Thanks for having me. No problem. How are you? Are you well? Uh, yeah, I'm just on the tail end of a cold at the moment, so um, my voice probably isn't quite as dynamic as it would be normally, but now I'm actually accentuating that dynamicism to compensate. So anyway, yeah, pretty much good, like 95% at health. Good to hear. So just, just so for those listeners that may not know you, Matt, would you mind just giving a, a couple of minutes introduction as to you know, what is creative entrepreneurship and futurism meaning to Matt O'Neill? Wow, God. Uh, <laughs> two minutes, is that? So I've got to wax lyrical for two minutes then, have I? Oh, maybe five uh, minutes. <laughs> <laughs> I might as well just, yeah, just make the whole thing for an hour long, a pure monologue. No, no, so very simply, I mean, creative entrepreneur, I suppose, encapsulates what I spent the majority of my professional life doing, whether that's been involved in running a creative agency. I suppose up until about 2007, I was involved with a little creative agency doing sort of lots of things connected with events. We then sold that business to a Swedish group called Cordovan. I left that in 2009, set up ModComs. And uh, I suppose my whole kind of raison d'etre was, you know, how do, we, how do we sort of innovate in our marketing communications? Because, you know, there's so much marketing communications that to me is just sort of noise and static. How do you sort of um, elevate that to the point that people want to engage with it? 
so I spent, uh, still continue to do that, actually. It's probably about sort of 30, 40% of what I do, working with a great team of freelancers around the world to deliver all sorts of um, different projects. But then around 2016, I just became really interested in this idea of futurism. And I think it's something that I'd always been interested in, to be honest with you, Gary. You know, even going back to school, university, you know, I was always, always interested in sort of how the world is changing. And then uh, I decided to join the London Futurist Meetup, which was hosted by David Wood. I went along to a session at Bloomberg, it was, where it was hosted. It was all about artificial intelligence. And I just had that feeling, you know, we were in the audience and there were a few things going on. The first one was it was taking every bit of my intelligence just to keep up with the content that was being discussed. And I was absolutely clawing, you know, going, what are they talking about? Da, 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 da. And, it, and I really, really enjoyed that sensation of being the dimmest person in the room. You know, it was just brilliant. And then uh, the other thing I really liked about it was that when the audience were asking questions, there was sort of various um, panel debates and um, keynote speakers, etc. It wasn't infused with any arrogance. You know, it was just people, there was no ego. I didn't, didn't get that feeling. People just wanted to learn from each other. And I thought, this is a community I want to be a part of. About a month later, I started looking around um, uh, whether I could do courses, uh, met up again with David Wood, who was running the London Futures Meetup, and he gave me some books to read and um, brilliant books because they were really fundamental. They were looking at the history of ideas and innovation, you know, going back thousands of years. And that was a really good grounding. Then did the course in Copenhagen with Future Navigator, which was a futures agency, incidentally, all women. I think it was five women and one guy. And the one guy was the most junior part of the organization. And that, that sort of set me um, in motion, let's say. So probably finished that around January of 20, would that have been January 2017? And then luckily by April 2017, that was my first paid work as a futurist. And that was working with a housing association to help them think about their strategy over the next 10 years. And then I suppose uh, the rest, as they say, is history. That's a really, really fascinating mix between the sort of marketing communications part and the futurism. Do you find there's a, a quite natural link or is it a link that you've designed, um, Matt, would you say? I suppose, you know, it, it always depends on our worldview, doesn't it, Gary? You know, it depends how we look at it. But I think because I, in my uh, sort of creative business life, I was always striving to move to the future. I mean, a case in point would have been in 2005 when people were barely talking about the use of social media in business. We were trying to implement event blogs to support our clients' events so that we could widen the reach beyond those who were simply uh, attending the face-to-face event. And, and that was quite a good business from about 2005 to about 2010 or so. And it worked really well. And obviously now social media and online communication is just uh, part of the DNA of doing business, really. But at the time, you know, we, we thought we were really cutting edge. And perhaps in some ways we were. Mm. So, so if you look at the sort of future of work angle, and obviously everybody uses that term. It's a bit of a throwaway term at the moment, but it's an important one with the sort of rate of change, technological change, etc. What are you seeing some of the key trends, if you don't mind sharing some of your wisdom, Matt. What are the sort of... <laughs> wisdom? <laughs> I mean, uh, my wisdom, right. <laughs> okay, uh, sit back, everyone, and prepare for some wisdom to come your way. Um, <laughs> well, I suppose... So, first of all, I think if you're in a good mental place and, uh, you know, like you're, you're aware of uh, sort of the changes that are happening around us. And I think you can be well prepared and it can be very promising. 
But I think there's a bit of a battle at the moment going on between, you know, the, the sort of organisations that we want and, um, you know, what's uh, still kind of mainstream. So I like to refer to in the corporate space, I sort of look at the traditional PLCs, I call them the A-class corporations. And what do I mean by that? Well, I mean that, you know, where the directors of those corporations, their primary responsibility is to deliver shareholder value. And, and usually that translates into financial results. But I think that there's a conflict going on, because if you look at the sort of, if you were to look, for example, towards Deloitte Millennial Survey, I hate the word millennial, that it lumps everyone together, but it's helpful to make my point. What we're seeing, I think, is that the values that are coming in from the younger people, Gen Y, Gen Z, or and by the way, Gen A is the hot thing at the moment, uh, those who are currently 8 to 18 years old. But if we look at just those millennials who I think it's important, by the way, to recognize, because, of course, by 2025, those people will be occupying the positions of senior leadership in our organizations across the world. You know, we see things like, for example, 86 um, percent, I think, in the last survey I read in 2017, 86 percent were looking for a strong sense of purpose in their work. There was also some interesting stats around people feeling a personal responsibility towards their impact on ethical behavior behavior of the organization. So I think that, you know, the traditional model where we're seeing sort of, you know, the, the shareholder is king versus, you know, the shifting attitudes of the younger people coming through who will be managing those organizations. Um, it, it just seems inevitable to me that uh, there will be some conflict. But step forward, the reason why I mentioned A-class corporations is, of course, we're now seeing the emergence of so-called B-corporations, B-corps since 2010, which uh, are set up from the position of saying, well, yes, our shareholders are, are a key stakeholder, but they're not the only stakeholder. You know, perhaps we have social causes or we have environmental causes or perhaps we feel a uh, responsibility to our customers, to our staff, to our uh, suppliers, whoever it might be. So I think that the world's in a really interesting state at the moment. I think also in terms of sort of what um, we as, as people might want to think about is it when um, you and I, for example, were discussing the uh, recent Future of Jobs report that uh, has come out both in 2016 and 2018. The 2018 version, I think, it's only released late last week, so I'm still working my way through it. But the broad sort of trend in terms of skills at the moment as faces us in the future of work is yes. We need that hardcore technical expertise and problem solving, no doubt about it. And what do I mean by that? Well, that means everything from those people who are writing the algorithms that are powering the modern world through to plumbers. You know, it's all, to me, complex problem solving. But equally, you know, we need a lot more, I suppose, of those things that right now are quite innate to human beings, you know, innovation. The pace of change is dictating that, you know, we really do need to focus on innovation because as you and I were talking about recently, you know, we saw um, one of the great 20th century monoliths slip off of the Dow Index, GE, for the first time since I think they'd ever been on them, probably sort of 100 years or so. So, you know, clearly we're seeing sort of a lot more disruption, even though that's a massively overused term that I find also vaguely annoying. And cue uh, innovation we need more creativity we need better leadership you know yes algorithms are starting to manage people you know a great case in point would be um uber or the deliveroos you know uber being the taxi firm or the food service uh, firm but uh, you know what happens when they when that goes wrong well then we need more people to step in and maybe arbitrate those decisions for example so and i think another mega trend that we need to look at in the future of work is of course contingent labor 
You know, like, so we're seeing uh, the growth of so-called gig economy platforms that um, are really in part arising because full-time employment, as we know it, the traditional model of full-time employment, the job for life is is in massive terminal decline. But what's in the ascendancy is obviously uh, this idea of contingent labor. And so, you know, I think that that presents both challenges to us, but also real opportunities. The opportunities being to introduce more flexibility into our lives, but the challenges, obviously, is uh, perhaps a huge reduction in the security that we have. And then I suppose the final point I'd make on this is around this idea of learning. You know, what does it mean to learn anymore? And if you were to look towards, there was a good book I read about a year ago, a guy called John Seeley, A New Culture of Learning, in which he says, well, the traditional model of having a qualification that lasts 30 years is dead or dying. You know, like the best we can hope for is perhaps five years. And so I think that that can manifest itself in very simple ways. So I was working with a client just before Christmas, and we were looking at um, the few, what they were going to be doing over the next 10 years, and continuous learning came up. And I said, well, it seems quite obvious to me, you actually have a cinema in your office. You know, Could you not sort of once a month um, convene together just to watch a TED video together and have a discussion about a TED video? Or could it be, heaven forbid, that one of your guys reads a book and reports back on it and you have a discussion? So I don't think it has to necessarily be a big formal program. You know, The important thing, I think, is a kind of drip approach. So and then in terms of sort of where I think the, you know, the, what we as humans might choose to do, we hear a lot of talk about sort of, oh, we've got to focus on the skills that we're going to need going forward. You know, what skills do I need? Oh, you know, let's set up a coding program at the firm because that's what we need. Just seems a bit weird to me because the machines are getting so much better at uh, programming themselves and the level of programming that you need to get to, the level of coding is increasing because the machines are getting better at at doing it for themselves. So I suppose maybe what we should be doing on a very human level is focusing less on the sorts of skills that we need, but perhaps focusing more on the sorts of problems that society is likely to have. Okay, so I'll give you an example. If, if say, you're an auditor, for example, yeah, and you're working with one of the big four firms, you might be getting a little bit nervous now because you can see that so-called artificial intelligence, which at the moment really is just sophisticated algorithms running on faster machines. Those algorithms, by the way, are not hugely different to what they were 10 years ago. It's just that we've got computing power that can uh, run them faster. But if I were an auditor there and I could see that elements of my job were, were being augmented in sophisticated ways or indeed automated, you know, maybe I would, with my futurist hat, you know, not everybody has the futurist hat to wear, but you might sort of look out to the future and say, well, you know, where might I like be able to use my skills in the future? Well, what are we seeing? We're seeing the growth in, uh, for example, the access or sharing economy. You know, more and more of our services, are, we recognize that we don't necessarily need to own. And, you know, one way that we can all relate to that would be just having a Netflix account, you know, the days of sort of going out and buying films and TV and are long gone. So then that, I think, is manifesting itself in the physical world more and more. So, you know, for example, I see a world in which uh, those auditors who maybe are going into business just looking at the numbers of businesses might say, hmm, well, the access economy is growing. So therefore, maybe I could have a job as a shareability auditor in which, you know, in five years, I'm going into the homes and businesses of people and I'm helping them to work out how they can extract greater value out of the physical assets that they own. So, you know, I, I look, for example, into someone's house. Oh, how often do you use that lawnmower, sir or madam? 
oh, really? Once a week? Is that it? Well, in that case, then, would you like to put it up onto Street Bank, for example, where your neighbours might wish to rent it? You know, or might wish to pay you a few pounds, or that could apply even to a bread maker. When was the last time you used your bread maker, Gary, if you've got one? So I think that the world of work is is really interesting. But, you know, we do need to have a certain amount of, I think, foresight to be able to see sort of where the opportunities lie. Cool. I've got about a million questions, Matt. I think we might need about 14 podcasts. <laughs> I think the thing that's really striking from what you've just described to me is just like, and you see in that, that job report you mentioned as well for the World Economic Forum, it's just, I'm excited personally, because I really feel we're moving to a really distinctly human world of work as we go forward. Because you say the machines are going to do most of the, you know, automated processing, etc. So, you know, the, the ability to communicate, to be empathetic, to build relationships, to build rapport, you know, to be creative, those things are truly going to be USPs, I think, in the future. Is that something you'd sort? Do you see it that way? Do you see it a bit differently? It's a good point. I mean, I, I wonder whether they'll be USPs or whether they'll just be necessary. You know, I mean, I've I've sort of painted quite an optimistic uh, view, and you know, these automation technologies. I mean, if again referring back to that future of jobs report, you know, one of the areas of uh, compound decline in the 2018 report is around sort of things like manual dexterity. You know, and so you know, obviously, there's a lot of people who are doing uh, manual work at the moment. You know, my question there would be, well, can those skills be transferred into other areas, for example? You know, so, yeah, you might be, I don't know, bashing panels on a car. and Maybe that's something that robots can do better. But, you know, if you were to escalate those skills up the value chain, you know, perhaps you could get into something that is more about uh, craft. Because incidentally, it seems obvious to me that, yes, there's there will be more robots, not as many robots as we are led to believe you only have to look at the statistics from the International Federation of Robotics to see that. But, um, you know, as they do start to uh, do more of our work, then perhaps things like um, crafts become important. And and uh, d- let's not forget that, you know, I think one of the symbols of wealth going forward, or just people who are feeling a bit flush at the time, perhaps are on holiday, will be, hmm, well, I could have the uh, the robot to do that particular task for me. But you know what? I'm feeling rich today. I think I'll have the human being instead. So I think people will be prepared to pay a premium uh, for that human service. Mm, that's, that's a really, really interesting insight. And I think part of the reason for this podcast, as you know, is around inclusion as well. And I think... I don't know what your thoughts are here, Matt, but I've got a feeling as well, we've got this real, you know, the gulf between rich and poor. Yeah, it's been getting bigger and wider and wider for many, many years. And there's talk about universal basic income. There's talk about other ways of trying to make the society more inclusive. I'm wondering if that angle you just mentioned, you know, you're talking about this, you know, if I'm feeling flush, actually having the more human experience over the, you know, the robotic experience. I do wonder if, you know, we're moving to this place where you know, human beings truly, truly, truly are going to be seen to be truly valuable. There's so many, many reports saying My, our people are our greatest asset, yet they're not treated that mm. way. So I'm wondering no, no. if we're moving towards, you know, almost society based on that GNA that you're talking about and the millennials actually saying, prove it, prove it, organization, that your people are your greatest asset. Well, I mean, so I'll give you a really practical example. This is something I've seen from two organizations that I work with who, if I paraphrase them, would say, we are seeing a significant minority of our people who are on the autistic spectrum. Uh, two, one is a government department, the other is a, a commercial firm. And I find this extraordinarily encouraging 
that it's being recognized. And I know that there's a number of HR people out there now who are talking about this idea of neurodiversity. You know, diversity used to be something that uh, a lot of people would associate maybe with a Benetton ad. You know, we've got to have our quota of um, female and males. You know, we've got to have our quota of um, ethnic groups, etc. But I find in a very practical sense, this paying more attention to neurodiversity is actually a really positive thing for society. So what do I mean by that? So, you know, if we talk about, um, and again, referring back to the future of jobs report, clearly, you know, those sort of analytical sort of programming type skills are absolutely of value in an age where we're seeing the need for more machine learning and artificial intelligence. And it seems obvious, or what these two firms have um, alluded to is that they've recognized that um, some of those technical people who are really, really good at those types of things definitely sit on the spectrum. Yeah. And so I think those organizations are what we'll see is those organizations. And indeed, we are seeing sort of more um, technical output from a range of organizations. Then it seems obvious that in order to retain or onboard and retain that sort of talent, then, you know, we need to have programs in place where that sort of diversity is, is recognized. But the challenge, I guess, going forward is a lot of it's to do with communication. So I was talking to my dad, for example, who when he retired, he went to work at a local college and uh, he had to deal with a situation where some of the students were, be, were really sort of being quite nasty to an Asperger's guy. And dad quickly worked out and he said, the way to handle the situation was just to remove the ambiguity from how we communicated you know, so, and that's something I suppose that in an organization undergoing change, there is a lot of ambiguity, you know, but perhaps one of the challenges for organizations going forward who recognize the value in having a neurodiverse staff base would be, well, how do we um, communicate with our neurotypical people, I think is the, is the expression, and then how do we remove that ambiguity so that uh, people sort of still feel a sense of, I suppose, certainty about the change process? So it's something I'm quite interested in, I think. like So to answer your question, inclusion, it's in some cases, it's not even optional. You know, it's not even optional. If we want to preserve our competitiveness, then that's just going to be a standard part of doing business every day. That's really, really interesting that you mentioned that. So, so we had a hackathon last mm-hmm. Friday. Um, something that Perry Timms um, led with a company called FDM. And it was actually around neurodiversity. And it's really interesting. One of the key takeaways was exactly the point you just made, which was how do we move organizations and society to be inclusive as standard? And then you actually tailor it. You know, you change it down or you change it away from being inclusive rather than having to design workspaces to be adaptive or dimming lights for people that maybe have Mm. autism. Actually, why don't you just build all that in in the first place? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, yeah, yeah. I just don't see how you can stay competitive and not go down that route. And inclusion in the wider sense, you know, especially as it seems to me the world is generally going to get more competitive because the barriers to entry uh, afforded by new technologies are lowering, are just getting easier. And that's why, you know, we're seeing so many of disruptors. I mean, one of my clients, without naming names, is a huge software company 
very well-known company, um, and most people will have heard of the name. But they are not just having their um, uh, heels uh, nipped at, but they're having big chunks of the leg taken out of them by these smaller businesses who are coming in and finding uh, better ways of doing things. So it just seems non-optional to me. It just seems if you want to be in business in the next five to ten years, then you better start uh, taking inclusion seriously. No, that's that's great. Really powerful message. If we move on to another one of the themes for this podcast and something you and I discuss a lot is around awareness or self-awareness. What does that mean to you? Or is it even a thing for for Matt O'Neill, just out of interest? (laughs) It's a good question. Self-awareness. What what would your take be on that? Yeah, that's a big question. So first of all, it is a very interesting question. And I think if you'd asked me that question five years ago, I'd have given you a very different answer to uh, how I give it today. So, you know, if it had been five years ago, I probably would have answered that in terms of like uh, trying to explain my psychology or explain, you know, my personality. But I spend a lot of time thinking about this question because it's something that I think matters to me quite a lot as a person. And I find it's quite interesting. If you were to look at, say, the growth of spiritual practices, uh, certainly in um, the developed West, for example, I think there seems to be more and more people looking at this. So I did a bit of research for a talk I gave a few months ago, and I was looking at, for example, the growth of uh, the growth, I think, of the U.S. meditation market, which encompasses wellness, it encompasses sort of digital wellness and so on and so forth, was set to grow, I think, from 2014. It was set to double by 2022. You know, or the number of people, for example, who practice yoga. So I enjoy practicing yoga. I enjoy the ritual. Again, looked at a study. I know it's probably a little bit biased, but the US, I think it was Yoga Alliance, um, said that between 2013 and 2016, the number of people who had said that they were practicing at least once a week had risen by 86%, which took it to over one in 10 of the US population. So maybe you have to take the stats for uh, with a, a pinch of salt. But it seems to me that uh, people are looking more and more to the sort of spiritual realm because, I don't know, perhaps they're not feeling enormously satisfied in the material realm, for example. So anyway, so I think that that's really interesting that people are, are looking. And I suppose to summarize, I used to look much more in terms of who I am, but now I'm more interested to ask the question like what I am. And what I am is a constant. What I am is unchanging. Yeah. So I, uh, without sort of going into detail, like what I am means that I have my experience of life through what, through my thought process or just through my thoughts, you know, and that, that manifests itself, you know, whether I'm having a cup of tea or uh, I don't know, perhaps I'm down at the yoga or whatever it happens to be. And so I'm really interested less in terms of who I am, which is changing all the time. And I've become more interested in how connected we are already to each other and everything. And in fact, I was talking to somebody who we both know, Piers, recently, and he he made a really interesting point. He said, well, (laughs) you know, have you ever stopped to wonder, you could look at geese, which are flying in a V-shape, for example, and you could explain that in terms of biology, the mechanics. But why they do that is perhaps something much deeper. You know, perhaps there's something much more going on about the connectedness of them to everything else. Perhaps there's almost an intelligent energy that is guiding them to fly like that. Or, you know, like it's very popular at the moment in employee engagement circles to talk about the need to find connection. You know, we've got to find human connection. But another way of looking at that might be to recognize the fact that connection is there all the time anyway. 
you know, and it's just that if you're aware of that connection, perhaps it, it unfolds more, more easily for you. So another great example of that would be, I don't know, next time you're on a train or on the underground or something, if the desire comes to you to smile at a stranger, and the stranger smiles back at you, what's happening? Is it that you found the connection or is it just a sort of a temporary drop in that sort of egoic thinking that make us believe that we're completely separate from everything to reveal what was there all the time? You know, that's perhaps one of the reasons I quite like um, yoga, for example. I recognize that it's a ritual and I recognize it's not changing anything, but what it is doing is just reminding me each time I'm giving my body a workout, but reminding me of uh, the connection to everything, to everything around me. So there's probably not your sort of typical answer, but that's what I'm most interested in at the moment is, you know, more what I am and how I'm connected to everything rather than just sort of um, that narrative of understanding myself through psychology. That's really powerful. A big shout out to Piers Thurston, because um, just for anyone that's listening, so Matt actually introduced me to Piers and I I went on to the Quality of Mind retreat and it's been genuinely life-changing um, for me. I've, I've spoke about this on other podcasts. But Matt, just to share one of my stories that, I, that I've, there's a realisation in the last couple of months since the workshop has been, so I had my mental health challenge, as you know, I had a burnout a couple of years ago. And going through this three-day retreat with peers, again, back to that point about awareness versus quality of mind, etc. it is so clear to me now that my me going bang two years ago was excessively layered thought over a period of time. And then I went bang. Because when I look back and reflect on what I was telling myself at that time, it was that person doesn't like me. I'm not going to progress because that person's the boss. I was looking outside of myself and creating a load of stuff in my head. And then I told myself a load of untruths. Then I went bang after about six months. And it's the most beautiful clarity to know now that actually I did it to myself. Mm. It sounds weird to say, but to know actually that actually I don't need to do that to myself anymore. And I just feel so accepting of, of what I am now. Yeah. It's really, really powerful. It's really Absolutely, powerful. yeah. Yeah, yeah, most definitely. Yeah, so I thank you for that, uh, that introduction. So um, I'm still, I guess I'm still in between sort of, I still see value because not everybody's where you're at and where we're at in terms of under, looking at what you are as well as sort of who we are. So I think there's still a journey to sort of, it's helpful still to show people. Absolutely, yeah, yeah. I mean, to try and force it down people's throats, I think is completely arrogant. I think it's a very personal thing. And, uh, you know, also we're living in the in the day-to-day reality you know so <laughs> do you really want to spend uh, your time especially when you're working I don't know in your everyday work life talking about what I am and, and constantly looking out of the window and say isn't it amazing how all those daffodils all came up at the same on the same day you know like the people are just most people might not relate to that so you know it is important to I think sort of relate it back to just you know the, the circumstances that we find ourselves in yeah no in- interesting do you want to talk a little bit about some, any other work that you're doing at the moment? Because I know that you've, you've, you've mentioned in the past around sort of some events you might be looking at in the future around, I think, was, was it in a futures event or something you've been sort of thinking about? Was there some other ideas you may have as to how to bring sort of... Well, I mean, to life? if we bring it back to, you know, the future of work for a moment. So I think what's quite interesting is to think about how do we give our organisations a voice, you know, both now and in the future? How do we sort of enable people to articulate, you know, those great ideas that so many of them will have, especially those people who are working at the rock face, you know, who are seeing the reality of the business? How do we get those to the fore? 
And so it seems to me what we've got going on is there's a lot of transparency in the external world, isn't there? You know, if you go, maybe you're going on holiday or you're going abroad or whatever, maybe you, you think, oh, maybe I'll just have a look at this hotel or restaurant on TripAdvisor, for example, and other review sites, or even maybe uh, Twitter might be a place that you would go, you know, especially when you want to see whether people are being positive or negative about something. And I suppose what I'm interested in is why are organizations different? Why do they think that they are different or can be different? You know, at the moment, those lines of communication tend to be a bit more locked down. But, you know, if you look at the traditional approach to finding out, I don't know how people feel, then I suppose the classic would be the annual employment engagement survey, right? But what is it? It's a snapshot in time. It's not actually sort of telling you, how a person feels because as we discussed earlier how a person is is changing in the moment so you know that survey might come out one day and they've had a particularly awful week or day or month or whatever it happens to be and all they can focus on is the negative points but it could be that the prior 11 months or the prior days or the prior uh, week uh, were amongst the best in their life you know so I think that idea of doing the annual employment survey doesn't sort of, it just doesn't seem to me to be in keeping with sort of how we are in our kind of newsfeed world, for example. So, and perhaps that's in part why we're seeing the growth of so-called um, working out loud practices, you know, emerging more. And I think in many ways, those borrow from the principles of the external world, you know, like, so people's uh, authority, for example, is is a lot gained from how transparent they are and their credibility rises alongside that. So you only have to look towards, I don't know, the so-called influencer world outside. But we're now seeing sort of uh, practitioners like John Stepper, the ex-MD of Deutsche Bank, who's built an entire consultancy practice out of traveling around the world to show people how they can use online tools to be more transparent in their decision-making. So I suppose in a small way, what I try to do with clients, and you alluded to the futures event, something I'd be really keen to grow is, going into the organization, working not just with the management team, but also the entire business to think about how the world is changing and how you can apply that to uh, the business. So um, going back to the old events days when we would use sort of uh, blogs, for example, what can we do using online communication that if we take an event as a case in point, before people arrive at the event, uh, they've got some idea about what they're actually there to do. They've got some idea about the sorts of topics that are there to be discussed. And then during the event, you know, can we expand the reach of that event? So it's not just an elite group of senior managers that are having workshops, but it's maybe through webcasts or through live blogs or, you know, whatever it happens to be. The technology to me is almost unimportant. It's the principles that underpin it that are important. Uh, we expand that reach and we invite feedback and contribution from across the entire organization. Yeah. But of course, you know, I think one of the things is that often, you know, you and I will have spent uh, lots of time in sort of like these quite pointless workshops where there's lots of discussion. But people know that when they leave that workshop, nothing ever really gets taken forward and people go back to their day job. And again, I think that's where we can use these online tools, uh, say, after that physical event. So let's say that, Gary, you have come up with an absolutely game changing idea that maybe actually isn't enormously difficult to implement but it does require a slight departure from your day job well it, when we were really doing this as a business but not with um, it, it was more purely about the client's agenda you know like the new strategy or what have you 
you know, one of the things we would do is lavish praise on people during workshops through the online platform. So, Gary, that was a stunning idea that you had. Get a picture, get you get a quote up on the live blog, etc. But what the, the difference being is that when you leave that, uh, you probably have one of our journalistic team on the phone to you a couple of weeks later. Gary, you know that thing that you said that you were going to do during the event? How's it going? Yeah. And be, oh, yeah. And because you, you want to be seen in a positive light by your peers, of course, then that, that it's not because you're being uh, beaten with a stick, but there's that carrot, I think, going on there. So being held accountable for the things that you say is also a strong way, I think, of getting change implemented as well, because you're now sort of completely accountable. So, uh, yeah, I mean, I'd really love to do more of the Futures event, helping organizations to think about how how uh, their how their future is impacting how they can prepare and plan and predict a positive future rather than just you know in the case of GE just falling off of the Dow index because perhaps you take a, a do you know what I'm not even going to try and guess why they've fallen off the Dow index but the fact is that they have so something uh, hasn't worked for them um, but yeah I think that that's really important now is to involve going back to inclusion you know how do we involve a far wider group of people who I think will come up with, it just seems inevitable, they're going to come up with uh, better quality solutions. No, I, I, I totally buy into that, man. I'm really looking forward to seeing, you know, your, your, your events develop because I think inclusion is one part, but I think back to what you mentioned about those at the coalface. You know, I've seen it for the last 20 years, those that have the information to drive change, to make the biggest innovations, creativity, adaptions, just aren't being heard all too often, whether it's due to fear at the top, again, ego, Etc. So it's a really interesting time for something like this event, I think, to come to life. So really looking forward to uh, to seeing how that progresses. Yeah. Well, hopefully, hopefully, yeah, yeah. I suppose it comes down to all things, though, isn't it? It's uh, you have to decide where you want to put your energy. So you know, I'm still, I'm still, I've got my sort of day job of stuff, which I thoroughly, thoroughly enjoy. But uh, I hope at, at some point, you know, running these futures events and and running them really well and making significant impact for organisations will become my day job. You know, that would be fantastic. Lovely. We'll all be there with you, Matt. So we we'll look forward to that. Out of interest, what's, what or who is inspiring you right now out of interest? It doesn't have to be anything, but you know, it could be a person, it could be a movement. Is there anything particularly that you look out into the world and really inspires you right now? I suppose uh, an element of that is what I sort of addressed earlier, you know, like the 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 curiosity around better understanding what I am. But, you know, that's a bit far out there again for this conversation. But what I'm really keen on is, yes, people, I think, sort of becoming more evolved and having a better understanding of who they are and what they are, but also how that fuses with new technologies. You know, and I think that technology affords us all kinds of opportunities if we really understand how we're working with it. So obviously we're hearing a lot about things like artificial intelligence, for example, and how that's likely to impact the workplace. Some of it, I believe, can be very positive, you know, especially if it's able to sort of automate or do some of the more kind of mundane tasks uh, that we've been doing, some of that more systematic work. Equally, I think a massive game changer that doesn't seem to be discussed all that much at the moment is virtual reality, you know, it's uh, we've seen it in science fiction films. You and I have had some good experiences through our friend Vin over at Clicks and Links. But I think that that is a technology that's not discussed, but has the potential to be absolutely life changing, mm-hmm. absolutely life changing. 
you know, the way that it could transform the workplace, for example, you know, like you and I will have sat on, and I'm sure many of our audience will have sat on very sort of dull teleconferences, you know, where one person is just talking and everyone else just goes on mute and they're eating their sandwiches or whatever they do. But, uh, you know, imagine being able to enter into a virtual world with your colleagues, for example, to collaborate on a new project or even to be able to share some drawings or even to create some drawings, you know. It actually enables a new way of working that in many ways it wouldn't even be possible in the physical world. Yeah, so for things like product development, for collaboration, for meetings where people are spread all over the world. And by the way, I think that becomes ever more important when we talk about the rise of contingent labor of the gig economy. You know, how are we going to actually collaborate with these people who maybe will never meet face to face, you know, because of the way that uh, organizations choose to work with people. So I think that virtual reality is something I think in the next three to five, maybe seven years, that's quite a wide um, that's quite a wide range of years but i think it, it's absolutely on a tipping point to become something massive but that also i think comes with massive challenges so i think it has enormous opportunities because it can give us new ways of working together and new ways of communicating but my sort of gut feeling about that technology is it's also it has the potential to become the next paradigm of addiction yeah. So if we have, uh, you know, we talk about drug addiction or addiction to food or, you know, I'm addicted to coffee or sugar or whatever it happens to be, you know, when we're in a situation where we can program a world or have a world manifest itself that satisfies every part of our ego, why would we want to leave it? You know, because the so-called real world will appear so much more dull compared to the world that satisfies every part of our ego. So I think that is a, a massive problem going forward. You know, we talk about, I mean, the big sort of, uh, what do you call it, like the zeitgeisty problem of our time. In the 20th century, it was stress. Now it's loneliness. I wonder if like, you know, in the next sort of 10 years when VR starts to become mainstream, if that, you know, addiction to virtual worlds will be uh, our big challenge. So, yeah, it's not without its challenges, but I think, you know, through hopefully a more mindful understanding of what we are and sort of always trying to remember that we are human beings, you know, then it, it can have some enormously positive impacts on us. No, thanks for sharing that. And thanks also for uh, taking over to see um, Clicks and Links. Uh, you know, I found it really powerful how not only from, like you say, that working out loud collaboration space, but also I saw opportunities to bring virtually sales teams together mm. you know you know project teams together into this shared space and i could it's so powerful matt isn't it yeah and you talk about sales you know imagine if even if you're sitting face to face with your customer you know you can talk in abstract terms about what your product or service is but you know if we take sort of the space that you work in imagine if you were able to say okay well we've been through the powerpoint file now why don't i take you to our development lab why don't you actually see what it is that we do that adds value as a business you know and then you can take them and maybe they have a chance to actually hear you know in a through a 3d video for example uh, one of your uh, technicians or one of your you know extremely skilled people talking about the work that they actually do so you know in terms of use i think using vr to help organizations build trust in the minds of customers you know it's one thing that you or i might see one of our customers and build it on a face-to-face -face basis on a one person to one person basis but you know we are representing for the most part we are representing much larger organizations so anything that we can do that 
builds that level of uh, of trust i think is is uh, only going to be extremely helpful and actually it provides us with a tool that we never had before you know the only way that we could have done that before would have been i don't know potentially to uh, take our customer to different sites around the world but you know time pressures etc uh, maybe vr is a good alternative it's really interesting. So some of the themes that are jumping out from our, our chat today, Matt, there's this sort of the transparency is coming up more and more. And of course, we see that, as you say, with the likes of TripAdvisor and Glassdoor and other sites. How linked for you, just out of interest, are trust and transparency as we go into the future of work? Good question. So I think just before the call, uh, we were having a quick chat, weren't we? And I was quite inspired by an article I saw on Twitter just last week where it was a very senior marketing person had posted an article he'd read about the challenge around sort of how marketeers need to find a way of proving their honesty, you know, because we are bombarded day in, day out with so many, so many, so many marketing messages. This article said that on average, a person working, you know, at a management level in a large organization might see 10,000 marketing messages a day. I'm not sure how that was calculated perhaps that's because they spend all day on google and google adwords i'm not sure but uh it seems to me that absolutely central to you know like creating sales or anything to do with marketing now it seems to me anything that is not supporting the establishment or maintaining existing relationships so developing new relationships or maintaining existing relationships is just a waste of time and money it's a total waste of time and money. I'm talking about B2B marketing or when you're selling to businesses. This isn't selling Mars bars. You know, this is usually selling significant products and services. So, you know, if you look at, say, for example, the amount of money and time and effort that's expended in, say, content marketing, for example, you know, content marketing should be a wonderful thing. You know, but I think, unfortunately, for so many organizations, because of the policies around sort of uh, what they produce, it might say, well, you know, we can only produce fact-based content marketing or you know it has to be educational but what we're actually interested in i mean if i think about the sorts of people that i read on social media for example i'm interested in those people who have a view who take a stand on things yeah and that's what counts isn't it it's and you see the odd organization that sort of um, does a very kind of lukewarm version of that but the most interesting ones are the ones where people take a stand so i think any sort of activity in that marketing or sales space that is not directly about creating good quality relationships or maintaining good quality relationships is a waste of money. And there's something else that's going on there as well. If, say, marketeers, for example, are trying to create those relationships, it also needs then the salespeople to be able to take that opportunity. So if your sales mindset is just about how do I get in front of as many people as possible and start talking about my features and benefits, you're on a complete loser, I think, now. You know, it seems to me much more, how do, the question is, how do I find ways of cementing a relationship that's going to last, a, a, you know, a long time? And then at the point that that person might need my products and services, I'm going to be a hell of a lot more favoured uh, than I would otherwise. Do you know something? I don't know if it's out there already, Matt, but you've sort of created another product um, for me. You've got like this, you know, they have like Checker Trade, for example, which is very much a B to, uh, you know, a B to C yeah. scenario. You know, and we've got Glassdoor, which is for employees looking at new mm. employers. But what will happen when you've got a genuine B2B transparent platform where people are going around going, right, I'm going to work with them because they've got this quotient for trust, this quotient for transparency, this quotient for listening. You know, there could well be something in the future. We've got this massive dashboard where actually people pick and choose who they actually work with based on 
much more depth of how that organization almost culture you know how's that it, culture it could be yeah i don't have a direct view on that per se i think you could be onto something but ultimately you know people do buy from people so you know it's in the b2b space anyway mm. so you know to me it's it really just comes down to those you know i don't know what it's called human to human interactions but it's just about I suppose, yeah, it's just about having trust with someone. And at the point that, let's say, somebody is ready to buy from you, you're going to be absolutely at the front of their mind compared to somebody who all they've done is just sort of ram sales messages down their throat from whatever means possible. It just seems obvious to me. It just seems absolutely obvious. Oh, nice. So it really just comes back to very, very basic principles. It really is. And so why is today different, for example, than, say, the 1980s or the 1990s, which I think a lot of organizations are still working in that paradigm? Well, in, in the 1980s or the 1990s, to a point in the 1990s, if you were a buyer of uh, services, you're working inside a large corporation, you would probably welcome those mail shots because you'd be, oh, that's interesting. I didn't know that product or service exists. Or you would be maybe going out to the trade exhibition because you want to get a sense of what's going on. But what's changed now is that, of course, you know, if I want to find out anything, I can just go online and I can get it in seconds. You know, or I can look at, you know, what people are saying about a given product and service, you know, online. So, you know, the way in which we on the supply side, I think, need to change is to recognize that fact, you know. And so it's no longer about just here's my product and features and benefits. It's more like how can what can I do that's going to add value to your life? And, uh, you know, how do I create a relationship that is something ongoing? I think that it's actually very positive. No, I completely share that. And I think, you know, you almost brought it perfectly full circle as we start to wrap up, Matt, which is, you know, we're really getting back to where we started, which is it's all about the genuine human traits. It's almost like the actual human experience. You know, how do we all use that human experience that we all have and the skills that are deeply human to make the biggest impact as we go forward with technology? I think it's such 100%. a... 100%. Yeah. Yeah. And, you know, ideally, we take the best out of uh, what technology can offer us. And then, you know, just by, it's not even optional to me, you know, like, yes, as I mentioned earlier, we still need those sort of complex problem solving, those sort of, to a point, those analytical skills, um, although a lot, I think a lot of the cognitive work in the future will be done by the machine. So it just seems obvious to me that we have to go back to what we are, because the machines are going to be a lot better at the things that um, they can do well than we can. That's great. Well, look, Matt, how can people find you if people want to reach out to you? What's the best mediums, what, you know, sort of website, handle? Uh, well, you can find me on LinkedIn, Matt O'Neill, although there's quite a few of us. I'm on Twitter as at Matt O'Neill, or uh, they're very welcome to email me at matt at futuristmat.com, but perhaps you could put that in the show notes if people want to connect with me there. Brilliant. Now, I'll make sure that all your contact details are in the show notes, Matt. And yeah, last word to yourself. Is there anything else you want to uh, to leave us with uh, um, of the day from Matt? Honestly, I genuinely believe this, and maybe this is coming from a, a quite a privileged worldview in many respects. But I think that if you take a little bit of time to look a bit at sort of the sorts of problems that society is likely to have, then you are already leagues ahead of many people in terms of how you can prepare for that future. Because if you're looking at the sorts of problems that society is likely to have, uh, it's going to give you a lot of information about how you can be ready for that. That's really powerful. Really powerful. Well, look, thanks very much for sparing the time today, Matt. All right. Thanks so much, Gary. Thank you, soon. Cheers now. Cheers. 
Hi there, it's just Gary Turner again, your host for this podcast. Some of the themes I just wanted to wrap up with following this really engaging conversation with, with Matt O'Neill is this is really key themes for me around sustain, the move towards sustainability and also the fact that we are truly moving towards times where we need to be valuing our most distinctly human skills and traits. And I think that's a really interesting development. And it takes me back to podcast 11 with Jenny Anderson, where she was talking about the importance of sustainability and how she helps organizations align with the global goals or sustainable sustainability development goals. So if we just think about where we're at, coming out of this industrial revolution, post bums on seats, um, job spec focused world into something that we're also very unsustainable based on pretty much extracting anything and a highly disposable um, consumerist society towards the complete opposite side of the coin towards a much more sustainable led much more distinctly human approach we can see why why we've got the level of friction that we have because this is really you know to use matt's word you know this is not just a an organizational change this is really a paradigm shift a huge paradigm shift um, which i'm really positive about and i'm pleased to be part of but it is a huge shift and something that we shouldn't understand um, shouldn't misunderstand i also took a lot away from this move from um, the security of long-time jobs towards something more flexible something more like the portfolio career which is something i've also discussed with kelly swingler in the past who i had a podcast with in episode four so this this move towards more contingent labor to more more towards um, these multiple jobs maybe even concurrently um, and away for the job to life is something that's very very clear and evident that something that looks like it's going to pick up pace as we move towards this highly te technological uh, future of work I really enjoyed the chat with Matt regarding his um, thoughts about neurodiverse staff. And I particularly enjoyed his reference um, to, to the fact that, you know, organizations, you know, you know, inclusion in some cases will not even be optional. To quote Matt, if we want to preserve our competitiveness going forward, then it's going to have to be a standard part of doing our business. And I think that's such a powerful message, such a powerful message for me. Um, you know, and also Matt mentioned, if you want to be in business in the next five to 10 years, you need to start taking inclusion seriously. So I really hope that this, this podcast gets out um, to as many people as possible because, you know, Matt is a futurist. He's heavily involved in looking at the future of work. He's in touch with people that are on the cutting edge of looking at how work may look in the future. And, you know, inclusion isn't just a box tick. It's not just about trying to make sure we meet quotas. You know, there is absolute huge value in breaking down the group think, breaking down the patriarchy, ensuring that we have more diverse thinking, that we have more, more inclusive thinking, that we are innovating and creating in ways um, that we tap into the latent potential that we all know is sit on everybody's shoulders to reference David Marquet from episode seven. So, you know, for me personally, it's a really, really, really exciting time right now. Challenging for many, but I can't help feeling that we are really starting to restitch ourselves together um, as a human race, a singular human race. I really do believe that. And my final reflection here is around the quality of mind retreat that um, I went on after Matt did with, uh, with Piers Thurston. I've never, ever seen myself as a spiritual person until the last few months. And there is a very distinct element of spirituality that I now possess and I'm happy to talk about because once you become aware as to how powerful we can be as individuals when we are connected when we are inclusive and when we de-layer our thoughts when we stop thinking and worrying about our ego and worrying about our fears and just start trying to get on with each other and try and collaborate and to try and grow and to try and be sustainable and distinctly human those two key themes 
you know, the world really is our oyster. And I think it's a really, really exciting time. And I look forward to your feedback. You've got to reach out to me directly. My Twitter handle is at Gary Turner Zero. That's Gary with two R's. You can also reach me on LinkedIn. You can contact Matt O'Neill on the relevant details that you can find on the show notes. So I hope you've enjoyed this um, podcast as much as I have. And please do reach out if you have any questions, challenges or thoughts. Thank you very much for now and uh, hope to hear you on the next podcast. Cheers. Thank you.